Welcome to Let's Face the Facts, the rewatch podcast for the classic sitcom, The Facts of Life. Join us each week as we synopsize, analyze, criticize, and ultimately idolize the show. And now, here's your host of Let's Face the Facts, the wonderful David Almeida! Thank you, Matthew Arter. Welcome back. Welcome. It's another week. No, I'm, I'm doing the what? normal. Just, just hold on one second, okay? <sighs> it's another week, another show. Thank you for downloading and pressing play. This week, we're going to be discussing Season 8, Episode 18, 62 Pickup, which had an original air date of February 21st of 1987. We are already on the Zoom, and Matthew is already here, as you may have heard. Hi, Matthew. Hi, David. I have my cards. I'm ready to play 52 Pickup. Yep. <laughs> what a interesting reference to that as a, as a game. There is no card playing per se in the show but to say oh let's do it 62 and yeah, i mean it it makes no more or less sense than any other title that we've had um let's talk some nuts and bolts huh i would love to talk about your nuts and bolts uh okay this episode was written by phil doran and douglas arango if you remember those names from the past they are writing partners they're supervising producers who are uh, in every single credits that roll at the end of the episode. They came aboard at the beginning of this season and will be staying with the show through the end of the entire series. As writers, this is their third of five episodes. Previously, they wrote The Little Chill. Oh, we had issues. Oh, the issues with The Little Chill. <laughs> and they also wrote Where's Papa? which we kind of liked. That's the one where Blair's dad was uh, on trial for insider trading. And we learned that uh, he was taking the bullet for his own dad, which is pretty awesome. And the episode was directed by our regular guy, in-house director, John Boab. So I will say ahead of time, I love this episode so much. Well, that's nice. Well, you got an episode out of this season that you love. <laughs> well, there have been a couple that I, I didn't mind. I wasn't mad at. But uh, how do you feel about this? It is another whimsical episode, David. So it's, I mean, it's up there. But uh-huh. I mean, I, I, I can't. I, I wanted Nancy McKeon to fucking crack a smile. Just <laughs> fucking once. Like she could not have looked more angry that she had to do this dance. And I just, well, I was like, okay. I did like the shit on lashes though. I mean, she looked good in the lashes. I actually have that in my notes. I like the lashes on her. And uh, the one good thing is even if she was not smiling because she was counting her steps, they all looked equally matched doing the choreography. That's the one good thing. There really wasn't a Beulah among them, which I was very glad because sometimes these musical episodes happen and you you kind of say, oh, wow. Yeah, we, we could have avoided some embarrassment there for this particular actor. Like how they gave Tracy Partridge the tambourine and she just kind of <laughs> hit herself in the head and <laughs> kind of hit herself wherever it landed. And it was like, oh, let's just... Let's not show Tracy Partridge, please. <laughs> uh, the musical episode of Scrubs, where most of them can carry a tune, some of them even better than that. And then you have Sarah Chalk, where whatever they wrote for her, what little they did write for her to sing, it was like, okay, it needs to be in a low woman's or high man's register, and it cannot be wider than a three-note range. <laughs> so it's... It's very obvious, like, oh, we know where things are lacking. And, uh, yeah. Uh, fun episode, though. And oh. you can tell Bobby Rydell and Fabian are having a good time. They're they adorable. Are. And I think one of the fun things about the episode is the costuming. It is so just rich and, and comedically uh, perfect in the costuming and that I, I just realized I created the perfect segue for myself for us 
to uh, cut away to our interview that we had with the costumer for the episode and for the entire seasons, uh, seven, eight, and nine, our close personal friend, the wonderful Diana Eden. I'm so glad I was able to get in touch with her and, and set this all up, being We're, so close with her. Yeah, you, you did, did you? So, so the email that I sent her and we responded back and forth to didn't achieve anything, you don't think? Well, maybe the text I sent her saying, check your email. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Once okay. again, Matthew, you are the glue and I cannot refute it. So let's uh, cut away to the interview. Let's let everyone hear our uh, talk that we had with her. And then when we come back, we'll be able to get into uh, our synopsis and our microscopic dissection. So let's take it away, you and me, with the wonderful Diana Eden. Here we are again talking to the amazingly talented Costume designer, Diana Eden. Hello, welcome back. Thank you, thank you so much. Well, as we are tackling the deep dive analysis of 62 Pickup, this is an episode that you've talked about already. I think it is mentioned in your book, Stars in Their Underwear. I think so. Yeah. I think we talked about it when we uh, originally had our first interview with you. So you say you have stories about this episode and we are here to listen to them. So <laughs> do you want, do you want me to just throw the ball to you or do you want me to ask you some specific questions? Well, um, I'll start off with um, the clothes that were designed and made, especially for the episode, uh, which was Blair's little turquoise dot dress. Um, I designed that and it was made for her by uh, uh, Maki in our, our workroom and of course fit her to a T. It was oh. perfect for her. Oh, like a glove. Gorgeous. Yes. Yes. And um, then the four dresses for their um, uh, girl group, uh, which were an orange brocade. And um, I always actually loved the 60s um, fashion, those little A-line dresses were always just, you know, um, so easy to wear and so smart, but I got them uh, designed and made. And um, even though the fabric was fancy, they looked a little plain. And I went to, um, you know, the dear um, costume designer, Rhett Turner, who was um, uh, one of Bob Mackey's partners. And I said, Rhett, I, I ju it, they just need something else. What can I add to just give him a little extra punch? And he said, well, I either use great big flowers or boa. And of course, the moment he said boa, I knew that was it. Oh. So, um, yeah. So I added boa and um, um, they all loved the costumes. They all seemed happy and uh, no one complained that the style didn't work for them and worked better for someone else. It really kind of worked for all of them. So they had fun yeah. with it. Too, which was great. And Nancy McKeon didn't threaten NBC by saying she was only going to wear her, her tennis shoes instead of wear high heels. Well, you know, the interesting thing when I rewatched the show last night, I'm looking at her in her heels and I'm thinking, she's wearing heels. Yeah. How did that happen? <laughs> and I, I don't remember that too. her fighting that. <laughs> so they all got into it. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's definitely wearing flats as as Frizzo in the other outfit. It's, yes. Oh yes, yes, which is appropriate. So those the four the four show dresses and yep. Lisa Welchel's blue polka dot number, that was what right. you designed. Everything else exactly. was found and tailored. Was shopped, rented, you know, found. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um um, and then, of course, we had our two stars, and they seemed to think the whole thing was a hoot. I mean, for them, it was just, you know, fun. And um, the thing I remember with the hair is that the producers decided that, um, you know, they needed to make them look like it was 1962 or, um, yeah. yeah, 62, um, and they need, needed more hair. So when they brought in the toupees for them to put on, um, they were just laughing. They thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever thought. <laughs> I mean, put hair on to look younger, you know, at that point in their lives. But um, they seemed to just be having a great time throughout the whole thing. 
That does come yeah. through. You can see that. And yeah. and their pompadours were really, I was doing a little research on the two of them. The, the yeah. pompadours really were a signature for particularly for Fabian. So yes. that was that was definitely yeah. a smart move. Yes, he, he had a lot of hair, you mm -hmm. know, a good head full of hair. However, I made one terrible faux pas with the wigs. Um, you know, all my training had been um, with Bob Mackey at Elizabeth Courtney Costumes. And I had seen all these incredible characters that he created for uh, Cher or Carol Burnett. And Bob always designed the wigs. And there was this woman called Renata who made them. Um, so when this situation came up, I knew exactly the look I wanted. And I called Renata and I said, can you make these wigs for the show? And she said, of course. So um, I got exactly what I wanted and was very happy and arrived on set on dress rehearsal day and took them to the hair department. And they were fit to be tied. And of course, in retrospect, I realized I'd been doing their job for them. I hadn't been planning to um, <laughs> minimize them or overstep, but it was just the way I'd been trained. Um, and of course, as you know, in theater, uh, the costume designer very often designs the wigs too. So they were absolutely furious. And I have a feeling there were conversations that went on, you know, that to this day, I don't know about. And I got my comeuppance because when it was Emmy time, they got nominated, hair and makeup got nominated for that episode. So <laughs> um, costumes wow. didn't. So they probably felt, you know, but um, it was just my um, inexperience at the time, knowing how the, the movie world and the TV world worked. Now was these, did you have the wigs made just for, Bobby Rydell and Fabian or the like the four the beehive and the girls wigs no I did the four I did all okay. of the wigs okay especially the okay. ones for them uh, okay. singing yeah. I, I'm not sure if I did the others for the girls at the beginning of the show I might not have but definitely the wigs that went with the orange dresses because okay. yeah, you designed them that makes sense that you would have had yeah, them because I mean it was part of yeah. the design yeah so yeah, so, they're like, uh, well, we did these other wigs. Why in the world do you think we wouldn't do these too? Yeah, you yeah, get the, exactly. The so, sentiment. Yeah. Was it any more or less stressful a production week because there was so much more to be gathered, made, and all that, or was it was it typical? I think it was a big week, um, but you know, because we had a lot of things being made, uh, and two guest stars, and yeah, and two guest stars. We always did the show in five days, no matter what. Mm -hmm. Um, that was the schedule, and you know, that's how it always worked out. So it was probably a pretty intense week. Um, and it wasn't a scary week because. <laughs> Having been around in 1962, I was in my element. I thought, oh, I've, I've worn these styles. I can do that. <laughs> you you know. had made them for your Barbie dolls when you were on tour with My Fair Lady, <laughs> yeah. right? Right, right, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I might have even worn my hair in a beehive at some point. It's quite possible. Yeah, oh, there are pictures of your modeling days. Absolutely, I remember <laughs> seeing some of those. They're, they're fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. So this, I'm very aware that this is probably stepping even too far, uh, asking for information. Uh, do you have any awareness about the music, the production, the song? Did your path ever cross with the composer Ray Colcord? No, no, not really. Um, and I think, you know, that's kind of a post-production thing, um, though in this case, it wasn't post, but, um, you know, we had the people that we saw and interacted with every day. And then there was this whole other part, you know, the editors and the music and the post that, you know, we were very unconnected to. Um, yeah, the girls probably went and did a pre-record uh, yeah. at some point. Um, I don't remember. So, um and I didn't know Ray uh, Colcord had gone on to um, bigger and better things. You mentioned, yeah, yeah. He's, he went on to do some pretty high-profile work. 
And uh, yeah, I didn't expect that your paths crossed often because of the yeah. fact that typically the music comes in afterwards, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you can tell that there's there might be some studio singers helping with the backup, but you can tell mm -hmm. it's them. They're doing their own singing and, oh, and yeah. it's quite well yeah. produced. It's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. And, and their little dance number was, you know, their movements were all, you know, yeah. perfect for for that. So um, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting looking back and and seeing the strengths of of all of the girls i thought kim was especially good as her little character you know um they all really just you could tell they ate it up and uh lisa welchel historically has said many times she loved doing any of the bigger broader fantasy nightmare yes. sequences yes. you can tell she is eating this up she is yes. so happy yes, yes. yeah Oh. And also it breaks up, you know, remember that back in the day of Facts of Life, we were doing 21 or 22 episodes a season rather than the, the six or the nine, you know, that are done now. So we were churning them out week after week after week. And so, you know, when we got something like this, it was great. We could get our teeth into it. Sure. And I yeah. love Mac in his Dennis the Menace thing at the beginning oh, yes, with the running yes, yes. joke of him yes. breaking yes. The, the window with the baseball and Chloris, yeah yeah chloris in her beat nick stoner chick yes. beret oh gorgeous yeah. oh i'll tell you one little tidbit um Clarus and mac were not originally in the um the nightclub scene oh um and not, you know, I think they were somewhere in the audience, but they were not really an integral part. And I think Clara saw that this was going to be a, you know, a pretty big scene and insisted that they write something so that she and Matt could really participate. So um, if I remember correctly, that that came in, you know, halfway through the week, not from the original script. And do you remember whose idea it was to put the goatee on Mac to make him? <laughs> To see a 13 year old boy, <laughs> probably cars, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is so oh. fun and funny to see that, and and perfect to yeah. have her doing the beatnik poetry reading with the bongos. Oh, it's yeah. like that yeah. is that was yeah. doesn't look imposed at all, yeah, yeah. And speaking of that scene, I feel like it was when we talked to you that you mentioned that the atmosphere on set that day with performing and the guest stars yeah. didn't you say that after you wrapped that it just erupted into a party didn't yeah. it yeah yeah the mood that night and for the taping was so much fun i mean very often you know we taped the show and then we'd have to do pickups and and go back and pick up a couple of lines that had been dropped or scenes that didn't work and it'd be getting later and everyone wanted to go home well not so for this because we did the the you know the performance um at the very end of the show and um everybody was just high on the energy and the fun and yeah it it, it was one of the really special taping nights that we had oh that's that's how yeah. we hope it would be when we watch an episode like this we're like yeah. i hope they're having as much fun off camera as as they are doing all this stuff that that really warms warms yeah. my heart well most of the time it was like that <laughs> on the whole it was a really happy set it, it seems like it was and to know that they're yeah. all all the the girls are still close that i think yeah. supports yeah. that and yeah. matthew what else do you want to know i think I'm, i've covered most of my big questions and you've already answered everything diana i had uh, wanted to ask well i love how they make it sound like it was ancient history but now you look back and put yourself in the time period and it's like, oh, if they're talking 22 years, 20 years ago from 1987 or whatever it was. So 25, yeah, years, we'd be yeah. talking about 2002 or two, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> yes. so yes. Yeah, yeah. my question, I guess, for you is you said like you grew up around that. What was it like for you to meet? Was it to meet Fabian and Bobby Rydell, like Fabian, let's talk. I mean, let he could get it. 
Yeah. So I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it was it was fabulous. I mean, I always looked to see who the guest stars were going to be, and you know, because that was my fun. I knew what the girls were going to need every week, more or less, and I knew what Clarice was going to need. So I would look and see who were going to be the guest stars, and sometimes they were, you know. Well, there's a little difference no. between Orson Bean and. Fabian walking up in front of you. You know what I mean? (laughs) I know. I know. I know. So, you know, when we heard that, we were all going, what? Really? (laughs) And they were kind and they were nice and they were. They were terrific. They were like such good sports. They really were. It was like they it was like they were having fun. They weren't doing a favor. They was like they said, hey, you know, let's go appear on the facts of life and, you know, have some fun. so we we all had a great week. They seem to really like each other as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Oh, you're amazing, Diana. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Diana, for jumping on the horn again. Uh, this probably won't be the last time. You know, we do have some okay. some other Lulus coming up as far as costume specific episodes. So as always, we so appreciate uh, your giving us the time. Thank you again so much. You are so welcome anytime. (laughs) So sweet of her to give us her time and talk with us. And we always, when I write to her, or I'm sorry, when, when Matthew writes to her and initiates contact, we do say to her, do you want to just answer a couple of questions and we'll just say it? on the show or do you want to talk and she's last two times has been like nope i want to zoom i want to tell you my stories i don't want to type this shit she's always good about hopping on a zoom call so are we ready to get into the synopsis let's do it give me a synopsis let's do this tootie answers the door to find two celebrities on her doorstep teen heartthrobs fabian and bobby rydell sadly tootie doesn't know who they are And the boys ask if they can get a peek at the old place, because it turns out the house was once a well-known boarding house where traveling performers would stay when they passed through town. The boys had actually stayed there, but Tootie tells them to come back later when the others are home. Then later, as Beverly Ann is being told what happened, she digs out some of her old 45s and is reminded of the story of how one of the records by one of her favorite girl groups came to be flashback we're now in the facts of life living room but it is 1962 and it is known as the blackbird boarding house its owner is mrs krebs played by cloris leachman dressed like a beatnik who also owns the blackbird coffee house next door but it is not doing well and it is on the verge of bankruptcy a little bit of a sidebar, Mackenzie Aston has a cameo as an incorrigible neighbor child who keeps breaking the windows with his baseball, a sort of Dennis the Menace meets Alfalfa type. So Fabian and Bobby Rydell arrive, playing their younger selves, staying at the house, and they are pursued by a bunch of crazed fans. Four particular fans break into the house, and they are played by the girls. Blair is Pinky, Joe is Frizzo, Natalie is Frenchie, and Tootie is Dee Dee. And they are an aspiring girl group called the Shalala, La La La, La 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 La's. Why are you shaking your head? Because this is going on really just, long. No, those fucking names were just, oh. I mean, come on. Oh, you didn't think it? I thought they were adorable. I love We've heard f- those names before in a movie, Grease. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, so that's what it's referential to. I think Frizzo. And the fact that her wig was not, was a bit frizzy. I thought that was kind of genius, but anyway. The girls want to show Fabian and Bobby a song that they wrote, hoping the boys might want to record it. Mrs. Krebs takes the sheet music and says she'll show it to the boys. But when Fabian and Bobby find the song on their own, Mrs. Krebs lies and tells them that she wrote it. Ooh, cliffhanger and commercial. When we come back from commercial, Mrs. Krebs tells the girls that the boys didn't like their song, but undeterred, the girls break into the house disguised as house painters. And to prove to Fabian and Bobby that the song is theirs, they perform it in its entirety with choreography. It is amazing. It's a song called Hot Rod Lover. 
Well, Mrs. Krebs fesses up and apologizes and says she only tried to steal the song to save her coffee house. So Fabian and Bobby take pity on her, offer to perform a benefit concert at the coffee house that night, which they do. The coffee house is the future Edna's Edibles slash over our heads space. The opening act is Mrs. Krebs performing some beat poetry accompanied by Andy on the bongos. And the main act is Fabian and Bobby with the shalala, la la la, la 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 la's backing them up, singing a song called Let's Put the Fun Back in Rock and Roll to the excited delight of the crowd and the audience and me. And then we end the flashback back to modern times. Bobby and Fabian return and ask to see the room that they stayed in on the third floor. And everyone is saddened to realize that since the house doesn't have a third floor, likely the boys actually stayed at the house next door. Wop, wop, wop. The end. Who wrote that, for Christ's sake? I wrote that. Jesus Christ, David. But now, but that, so that that's was two minutes. That's not a synopsis. That's a fucking scene by scene replay. No, not. But now Jesus we get, that took two synopsis minutes. Is, we flash back to 1962 with Bobby Rydell and Fabian, for Christ's sake. Oh my God, no wonder you never wrote for TV Guide. <laughs> Christ. Yeah, yeah, that's why. That's why they never called me. Well, whatever. Well, what the fuck are we supposed to talk about now? There you go. That's it. Good night, well, everybody. No. The thing is, we don't have to stop, start, stop, start, and then line by line by line. I just did that, and we're done. Now we can just talk about shit, and we're not beholden to having to follow a linear uh, thing. The whole, you're getting ahead of us. Shut up. Stop talking. Okay. So what do you want to talk about? First, about the episode. How dare well, you? first of all, um, Bobby Rydell and Fabian are both 45 years old in this episode. Fabian is like eight months younger. Like it's very, very close in age. Yeah. So 45. That's mm. how old they are. Um, this was 87. They talk about it being 1962. And I always get bothered when people like, especially in the 80s, they're like, Oh, the 60s were ancient history. Nobody knows anything about the 60s. And it's like, uh, really? You, I mean, because I remember growing up in the 80s and having radio stations. Granted, they called them the oldies stations. <laughs> it's true. So Can true. you imagine which, like, if that were the case, like, they'd be playing stuff from 2002 on an oldie station right yeah. now. Um, but what I will say is that uh, it, to me, the, the thing to try to contextualize this in the eighties, when this episode is happening, the sixties really weren't done. We were still trapped in this 1950s thing from, you know, Greece and happy days and all that shit in the seventies, that big wave of nostalgia still was kind of settling down and some of the fashion from the 80s was uh, referential to the 50s, but there wasn't a lot of 60s nostalgia going on at the time. Do you agree? I know you're too young, but. I mean, this is about the time when Nick at Night was starting, right? I feel like Nick at Night was more early 90s, wasn't it? Jesus Christ, 1985. Oh, it did. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I knew it was the mid 80s because I was a kid watching that stuff. But, um, yeah. But those but, were the shows that were already in reruns, like on the UHF stations. Like I grew up watching Bewitched and Gilligan's Island and The Monsters and uh, I Dream of Genie, like Batman, all the stuff from the 60s. But there wasn't a lot of dress up like oh, the thing I've talked about before that Andrea Martin as Edith Prickly looked ridiculous in the 70s, wearing a three quarter sleeve leopard print fur coat, pill boxy hat and cat's eye glasses. That was a deliberate look to make her look out of date and silly. Now you look at her and you're like, that's that's pretty chic. That kind of works, you know, so. 
that's what my thing is that I, I don't feel like the fifth, the sixties weren't being referenced and celebrated at this point in history. Certainly not the way the fifties had been over the last 10 to 15 years. Okay. But I, I don't know. I'm sure there's a fucking thesis paper somewhere where I could easily be proved wrong. But I guess what I'm saying is for me as someone who was in this point, I mean, I'm 18. I'm about to turn 19 in, uh, in 1987. So I do remember this time. And uh, let's talk about, let's, let's stop talking about me for once. I know, shock. But let's talk about Fabian and Bobby Rydell. Did you know who they were growing up? When did you know who they were? Um, just like, and and still to this day, I, I probably wouldn't be able to pick him out of a lineup. Like if you showed me a picture <laughs> of a guy and was like, who's this? I'd be like, I have no idea. But um, obviously, um, Bobby Rydell, the name from the, uh, the school in Greece is named after him but 100% um, yep and just hearing the name Fabian just because I I listened to music that was from a different generation but like I looked at pictures of him and Fabian was pretty beautiful Bobby Rydell not so much um but they were more like 50s singers like they were kind of like clean cut I felt like they were kind of like the good boys like Frankie Avalon kind of kind of and, stuff. Yeah, you're Paul Anka and Ricky Nelson. Yeah. 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 That's uh, another thing to to point out here. This takes place in 1962. 1962 is really for all intents and purposes the 50s culturally. There's yeah. not that much yet when you think of the 60s, the psychedelic prince and the drug culture and the Manson family and uh, ugly polyester clothes and bell bottoms. All of that was much later. And this is when we're still in the 50s. The hair was getting bigger. It definitely was. Uh, but uh, yeah, the fashion and all that. And, you know, Diana Eden magnificently stuck to <laughs> 1962, things we would actually see there. She never went to the late 60s, which could have easily uh, been a, a place to go. Uh, and the way Chloris is you know, portrayed as a beatnik poet. Beatnik, beat poetry, that's all 50s, man. That's late 50s, early 60s in a nutshell. My issue is it with it is that she's a beatnik running a beatnik poetry cafe. I, I feel like Bobby Rydell and Fabian would have been too, like, lame for that, like, for the beatniks. Too mainstream, yeah. The beatniks would have been like, uh these two nerds, you know, <laughs> but um, that was just uncomfortable. I hadn't thought of that, but you're probably right. You're probably right. Well, Fabian and Bobby, Fabian's last name is Forte, by the way, Fabian Forte, but he's just known professionally as Fabian. And I only knew Bobby Rydell from uh, Bye Bye Birdie, playing the boyfriend of Anne Margaret, um, who sexually seems to be about three decades younger than she is. But, uh, and I only knew Fabian from Laverne and Shirley because they were obsessed with Fabian. Laverne and Shirley took place in the 50s. And there was an episode where Fabian did sh- come on the show playing himself. And, uh, and it was a delightful episode. But I really, they, I missed them completely. They weren't around. I, I, like I asked Diana, where were they in the 70s? Why, for all of the square, I'm putting air quotes, for all the square acts that they brought onto the variety shows for the need for more talent, we never saw them on the Flip Wilson show. They never appeared on Donnie and Marie or Shields and Yarnell. And, and, and I wonder what, what is that? Why is that? I wonder that too. I mean, Fabian made a pretty good career playing himself on episodes of like um, Mm -hmm. Laverne and Shirley and this, I mean, true. And he definitely did the, um, the um, game show circuit in the eighties, but Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they were never really like, it was about 89 or 88 when the beach boys released Kokomo and that kind of brought back that that like concerts where 
you know, it was Fabian opening for the Beach Boys or, you know, the nostalgia circuit, as they say. Yeah. Like you might see them on an 80s cruise now. (laughs) (laughs) Next to cinnamon. (laughs) Well, I watched a lot of television in the 70s. We have established that over the past uh, 183 weeks. But the deal is, I did not know who Frankie Avalon was when he appeared in the movie Grease. I heard the audience around me reacting a little bit, but as a kid who had been doing nothing but consuming contemporary television and reruns, I was like, I don't know this guy. I I guess at that point I hadn't even accidentally stumbled upon a beach party movie to know who Frankie Avalon was. So that was just... It, that all just feeds into this thing of where were these guys during this time when it's clear they needed any and all talent they could get their hands on for the Carol Burnett show and for Van Dyke and company and all that. But uh, both of these guys are Italian, both of them born and raised in Philly. So their rapport, their comfort level, and their clear sense of play and and comfort with each other is just delightful i loved them in this episode yeah i think they got the joke oh you you have said it many times they understood the assignment and they they did it beautifully and one reason why this episode ages well why it's so enjoyable to watch now is they smartly included that first scene where Tootie is as the youngest of the kids. And remember, I'm a year older than Tootie. And Tootie is like, I don't know who you are. So thankfully, they got the chance to say, whoa, that hurts. Yeah, I'm going to cry all the way home and all that. But, you know, take it in stride. Ah, We used to be famous. We're not so much anymore. That was a, a lovely thing because then we got Beverly Ann to tell us about who they were the the episode establishes that and re re-establishes that for those who didn't know for the facts that may have been lost to entertainment history bobby rydell just died earlier this month he just died on april the 5th of 2022 yeah hmm that's sad <laughs> is that <laughs> you know he was he was in his 80s he lived a good life he had a good career um i especially enjoyed the anti-gay joke that they had that they felt the need to make when homophobia yep at least that is timeless from the 60s to the 80s ladies and gentlemen i was like there's a part of me was like sit down fabian ain't nobody knocking down your door you know what i mean (laughs) yeah nice pompadour how much time does it take you to fluff that up every day Jesus, not as much but, time as it probably takes you to fluff up Bobby Rydell. Oh, shikes. ancient old carcass. <laughs> what we're talking about is when the girls are in disguise and we think they're men. Like It's a Lucille Ball situation. Very 60s, full face of makeup, full lashes, but mustaches and uh, full body um, workman suits and hats. And they can't tell that they're actually women in disguise. So Natalie, as the horny one, is making comments and making a play. And it's like, whoa, stay away from that guy there. And then when it's revealed it's a girl, it's like, oh, thank God. Thought yeah. I might catch the queer off of this fag. Yeah, I didn't like yep. that at all. Take a seat, Fabian. Yeah, you take the good, you take the bad. Yep. So missing from syndication is uh, a little bit from the following scene where now Beverly Ann and the girls are all talking to Tootie and Beverly Ann is kind of bringing everyone up to speed. And uh, there's a very kind of important little thing that I have to obsess on here. So um, this is where Andy says, oh, that music is prehistoric. And Beverly's like, shut your fucking mouth. And do you live here? Uh, I'm paraphrasing. But she says, and I'm quoting the episode now, I beg your pardon. That was my era, and I loved it. Girl groups, doo-wop music, twisting the night away. Oh, gosh, I was hip. She was also in her 40s. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You knew I was going there. You knew I was going to go there. Ladies and gentlemen, we have long analyzed how old was Edna Garrett 
and therefore by association, how old is Beverly Ann as her younger sister? Well, keeping in mind that both Charlotte Ray and Cloris Leachman were born in 1926. They, therefore, in 1962, both of them were 36 years old. I, I mean, so you weren't it's exactly like, going to sock hops. And <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So that's how old the actresses are. Now, we talked about the, the best I can uh, do the detective work. We think Mrs. Garrett was born around 1930. So the, the best scenario is that Edna would have been 32 or even take a couple years off that, which I don't think we can do due to the ages of her children. Edna would have been 32. Beverly Ann, <laughs> even if she was five years younger, a 27-year-old in 1962, you were married with fucking kids or you were a spinster. You weren't, like you said, you weren't going to sock hops and hanging around the soda fountain and <laughs> playing the jukebox. So <laughs> I did, I'm glad you picked up on that too, where you're like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, she implies she was a teenager. So yeah, apparently she is. Uh, well, let's look at it this way. She was born in 26. Fabian was born in 42. Bobby was born in 43. She is almost old enough to be their mother. Yeah. She's 20 years older than these two guys. So. Yeah. Jesus. But anyway, long as we've got that out of the way. And for those who saw the syndicated version, I'm sorry, you didn't actually get to see that little scene. Uh, but where we come back from the little cut is where Beverly Ann grabs the record and puts on the record for uh, the initialization of the flashback. And Cloris is so good as the beatnik. Oh like my God. The line deliveries, the stance, the, the, the line readings, especially like she really, she, she, she overplayed it without overplaying it. It was brilliant the way yeah. she did it. Like, like, like the way she would just end some of them on an, uh, what? Like you would immediately think like, oh, I'm going to play a beat next. So everything's going to end on a downbeat. And, but the way she would be like, what is happening? <laughs> like she ended things on an up and it was, she was just little brilliant acting that she did in that. And I'm, I don't say this very often. I really have to credit the script writing in that it gave her the language to also be able to explore that with things like, oh no, daddy-o, you cats are nowheresville. And all, all those type of tropes, which are just, I mean, put, put those words in Cloris Leachman's hands and she spins straw into gold. So magnificent. What'd you think of the set? The way they redressed the living room to look like it's 1962 counterpart. I thought, why bother? I mean, <laughs> what honestly, what what was that for Christ's sake? It was it, it was still that color blue that well then they took the wallpaper, which was one of the only muted tones in the room, and they put panels in there and they were pink. So we're we're in over our heads, bubblegum, baby blue. Like I'm like, I, that color palette's not really a thing yet. Yeah. Wow. And uh, so, I mean, I, I was like, why? Okay. That seemed like a cheap half-ass kind of thing for them to, for them to do. Mm. I noticed that the curtains at the back look like they might be camouflage. And then the sofa has this black and white leaf print. I thought it was leopard, uh, zebra print at first, but no, there's a leopard print uh, pillow that Natalie that Frenchie keeps holding uh, that's there. But yeah, they position the furniture completely different. And in the back, in that little alcove by the French doors on the right side, on the, the side of the front door, do you notice there's a counter and stools, like a little Eden area, I guess. Well, because the, the dining room table's not there, is it? Is the piano. Oh, a pink piano, by the way. How yeah. 1962, a pink piano, really? So I, yeah, the set dressing. It was fine. It wasn't anything drop dead. Oh my God. 
Uh, and they had like an antique TV in the back that was, you could tell was actual vintage. And it's like, uh, if you had built something more fun, it probably would have read better. Yeah. So sometimes using the actual thing is not the best thing. And uh, what's the other thing I wanted to say about the set dressing? Oh, oh, uh, when the girls break in, when the, we first meet the four, the girl group, they break in through the French doors in the back. Matthew, I do not think anyone has ever walked through those French doors since the first episodes back in the Edna's Edibles days. Remember we had that one episode where they were just coming in and out of random doors because they hadn't kind of figured out which way was best. And then it all ended on just come in and out of the front door all the time. Well, this was coming in. I was, I was so shocked. I'm like, God, I didn't even know they still worked. I thought they just took the hinges off for Christ's sake. I just love like knowing that there's only like a foot of space back there, like that they were oh, all God, lined yeah. up back there. But oh God, yeah. I'm, I did want to know why they didn't put Joe on the end because Blair's the only Mouseketeer on the stage and she's being blocked in her choreography in the final scene. I did have a problem with that. Yeah, that was uh, put interesting. Joe on the end, hide Joe behind the two boys. Because she's the one who's not having any fucking fun up there. And Blair is a Mouseketeer, for Christ's sake. This is her element. They are in billing order, though, aren't they? In terms of from right to left, it's Blair, Joe, Natalie, Tootie. A, I guess age order. Um, and they, they keep that consistent. They, they're in the same position in both songs. But yeah, they could have just swapped that or just, yeah, I agree. Put Joe on the end. Um, want to talk about the costumes? We we talked to Diana a little bit about them, but uh, watching it again, watching the episode again, God, they are just so fucking fun. The thing I love is how flattering it is, the fact that they all look good in these different, and it's four distinct different styles. You know, Joe is dressed as the tough chick with the leather jacket. Blair is dressed almost like a, a June Cleaver housewife in that Diana Eden original, the blue polka dots. Interesting that they're blue polka dots when her name is Pinky. It's like, why didn't you make it pink? Should have asked her, what was I thinking? Uh, Tootie has got a letter jacket on and some uh, leggings and, and very high She's heels. She's in capri pants. Capri, capri pants, there it is. And here's the thing, this is a fascinating thing about clothing and costuming. I'm not saying anything out of turn or judgmental when I say Kim Fields is a curvy girl and she is busty. And so often the 1980s fashion, because it was all based on blousing and, you know, belting and cinch it and, you know, big wide shoulder pads. There are times, even at her best, Kim Field looks bigger than we know she actually is. Watching her in this episode wearing something form-fitting, she looks amazing. Her body looks incredible. It's the weird thing where wearing tighter clothes, typically you think, oh God, don't wear tight clothes. I don't want to, you know, have my body's flush. But it's like, no, when you wear clothes that actually fit the body, the body looks better. And it took us the better part of two decades, the 80s and the 90s, to figure that out. And, oof. I mean, never mind the fact, I know you're, you're, you're doting on the writing here, but never mind the fact that these four girls would never be friends, let alone <laughs> oh God, a no. singing group, for God's sake. Like, yeah. I mean, they couldn't have, I mean, I get it for the comedy's sake. They're all playing this archetype, mm -hmm. but it, it's like, okay, we get, okay. I don't think Frizzo would have wasted much time hanging out with Pinky over here. <laughs> True. And I love that they did variations on their existing hair colors. So you got your blonde, brunette, redhead, Blair, Joe, Natalie, and uh, and the wig that they have for Kim Fields, that beautiful caramely color. I just, I, I am really all about Kim Fields' look for this show. It really, really is fabulous. I loved Andy's Dennis the Menace look, and then later the the goatee, him with the bongos. <laughs> Putting him on the bongos. That was like a little bit of comedic genius to watching uh, the two of those work together. 
Yes. And, oh, and then doing some of the choreography on the sidelines too, in the, in the finale number. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the beatnik poetry, I, I had to cut and paste this because God, it's so fucking funny. From deep within my screeching, howling, bottomless abyss, I greet the new dawn, a nightmare scream frozen in my throat. And then she tags it with, I call that my ode to spring. <laughs> <laughs> Just perfection. So speaking of uh, the choreography, when the girls are performing both of the songs, that is a, that's a lot of choreography that they do. It keeps changing. There's very little repetition in it. There's a lot of theme and variation, but I sat there going, wow, they did not take the easy way out. I don't know who they brought in to choreograph this, but um, wow, I was very impressed. And all of them really did a good job. Nancy could have smiled. <laughs> that would have been welcome. But um, yeah, and Fabian and Bobby singing that final number, let's put the fun back in rock and roll. Um, I assume these songs, by the way, were written by, as we talked with Diana, were, I assume these songs were written by Ray Colcord because he was the guy that did the music, but there's no credit for them. And, uh, and they sound good, whatever work they did in the studio with their voices, the pre-recorded uh, sound certainly helps them sound more professional, but you can tell it's their voices and they're doing great with it. So uh, Matthew, I'm, I can't believe I'm about to say this. I am almost done with uh, all of my notes here. I have nothing else, just the joy of that uh, moment at the end when the crowd jumps up and joins in and claps and sings and uh, how, how joyous that feels as the viewer and then to learn that that was such a real thing actually on the set. I just, mm. I fucking love this episode. Oh, I hate to shit on the end for you. What, oh God, what are you gonna do? I just, okay, they end the show in 1961 or 62, right? They end the show in 1962, right? Mm -hmm. And there are Fabian and Bobby Rydell singing a song about the old days. Oh, wow. You are totally right. I totally missed that. Uh... You're totally right. See, I just got swept up in it, but you're totally right. And it's like a laundry list of let's all twist and shout and do this and that. And let's put the fun back. Yeah. In 1962, there was plenty of fun still in the rock and roll. It had been lost by 87. True. Wow. I didn't even think of that. Just seems like they should have done. <laughs> He's my backseat <laughs> Romeo, I guess. Hot rod lover. Um, it's a great song. Giggity. Um, it sounds a lot. It's, it's, the, it's a very common chord progression. So it sounds like a lot of the songs in Greece. And I swear to God, after I watched this, I could not get it out of my fucking head. I was <laughs> hot rod lover like no other. He's my backseat. Romeo, Romeo. <laughs> so, and uh, yeah, the only other note I have here is the final moment of the episode. Uh, to Like we have not gotten enough of the comedic genius of Cloris Leachman. No, no, nay, nay. Hold on. We still got more fuel in that tank. Where? Because she's meeting Fabian and Bobby Rydell. They're about to arrive. She runs upstairs to change. So while she's up there is when they discover this is the wrong house and they leave. So after they're out the door, <laughs> Gloris comes down stunning in a red yeah. dress. Not the red potato sack and not the red Valentine's Day dress. This is a different red dress. Gorgeous. And it's just her running down the stairs going, are they here, Bobby, Fabian? And her running back to the kitchen and her running into the store and just running around like a chicken with her head cut off. And none of the girls saying, they're outside. Go out, go out the front door and you can catch them, I'm sure. But just her just running around like a fucking idiot. And I'm just like, and, and yet she is still brilliant. How does she do it? She is goddamn magic, that woman. She's a great actress. Yeah. She understood the assignment. 
So true. So very true. Well, I think the thing I love about this, except for our show Bible moment of how old do they think that we think Beverly Ann is trying to pass for, uh, I think because it's an episode that is deliberately set up to be broad and cartoonish, they can get away with more and they do. I think they they had the ability to go there and they did go there. I didn't feel like there was a a lot of missed opportunities are not taking it far enough. Yeah, agreed. So yeah, that's it. When an episode uh, sets up your expectations and then delivers them and at times even exceeds them, because I'm not sure we, um, well, I guess we did foresee that there would be a song because it's the record that um, uh, is the the uh, precipitating event as it were for the the flashback but the the fact that they had two very well-written fun polished musical performances in this episode on top of all the other comedy and silliness i just yeah this is one of my all-time favorites this is a this might be at one of the top five definitely a top 10 for me okay could you just because i know you're always looking for some sort of realism in it then could you explain to me how Beverly Ann knows this whole story about the Shangri-La-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-las and their encounter with Fabian and everything at this building that she has, it's like- That that, she's only lived in for a few months now. A few months. And then at the (laughs) end, they're like, whatever happened to the Shangri-La-la-la-la-las, Beverly Ann? And her response should have been like, how the fuck do I know? (laughs) But she says, that's the story of how it is. How did she put it? It's the line is something like, well, that's that's how they say the story goes. So it could just be that, oh, my God, I'm totally living in the house. I remember there's a story about this group and this thing at some boarding house in Peekskill. It must have been here. I'm okay. I'm I'm justifying. I'm aware that I'm justifying. You know what I have a bigger oh. problem with? Beverly Ann saying, "Oh, I think I have some of my 45s buried back here." Bitch, why are they buried? You just moved in. Jesus. Why did you have to go out to the garage to dig out your sheet music with George Clooney for the piano when you you just moved here? How much shit did you bring with you? Well, grandma's this grandma's sewing machine. Up in the attic. Yep. That's still en route right now, by the way. It's still on a boat somewhere to Africa. (laughs) Charlotte is calling Federal Express with a tracking number. Uh, Edna is and trying to find out where where it might be if there's a delivery date in the system yet. (laughs) Well, I think that wraps it up, darling. You have anything else you want to say before we head on out and let these lovely listeners get back to their day. I find it fascinating that that you finally let a little bit of whimsy and allowed yourself to like an episode. Yeah. And all it took was Fabian. It took Fabian. He uh, did you see you saw the pictures of him in his heyday? Yeah, he could get it. He could have gotten it on this episode. Uh, damn straight. I would have, I would, 45-year-old Fabian walked in in that sweater, by the way, which I want. I would wear that sweater today if I had the opportunity. But yeah. Mm. So, well, thank you, Matthew. And we definitely want to give our great thanks to Diana Eden for giving us uh, that mini interview that we featured earlier. Don't forget, you can get your copy of Stars in Their Underwear. Diana's wonderful memoir at amazon.com. The link is in the show notes and on this episode's webpage. And next week, Matthew, we're going to be watching season eight, episode 19, Boy About the House. That where Andy gets adopted. Mm -hmm. Where Andy's entire family somehow dies or disappears. You know what I think it might be? We haven't watched the episode yet. We need to look at this through the lens of, did it have something to do with Edna, the drugs, the feds, and the fire. Mm. Remember we said that Andy's parents maybe died in the fire or something. Maybe maybe they were somehow involved. And, mm. and hopefully the grandma just died of a heart attack a couple weeks ago. That bitch. Yeah. The Moffat crime family of Big Skill. <laughs> 
Peekskill crime family. <laughs> well, if you want to watch the episode ahead, you can at dailymotion.com. That link is also in the show notes and on this episode's webpage. And that is all. Thank you so much for listening to the show this week. And remember, you want like, to say it. Like, hey, man, the facts of life are like all about you and stuff. <laughs> that was brilliant. Morris has a beatnik delivery. Brilliant. Let's Face the Facts was created, produced, written, hosted, and edited by the wonderful David Almeida. Our theme song was beautifully arranged and recorded by Ned Wilkinson. Please visit facethefactspod.com for supplemental photos and videos, links to social media, and ways that you can support the show. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. This is Matthew Arder saying tune in again next week for another thrilling episode of Let's Face the Facts. <laughs>